Today is an exciting day because we get to talk about treasure. I love the, the topic of treasure, and so does everyone if you are a human being. That's tall. Uh, if we find oil at the bottom of the ocean, we will go and get it. We do that. We have these huge rigs, and, and the technology, the effort, the money that it takes to get the oil out of the ground at the bottom of the ocean is no small feat, and we do it. If we find gold in a mountain, we will retrieve it. doesn't matter what it takes. We will get to the middle of that mountain, and we will get the gold. If we think there might be gold floating down a river, we will pan for it. If we were to find some kind of resource that we deem to be valuable on the moon, we would make that moon into Swiss cheese to bring it back to Earth. And I would say that if we found in, in the next decade or, or even less or longer, whatever, but in the near future, if we found that Mars was just holding all kinds of valuable something that we could use for some reason to increase our, our, our wealth or our energy or whatever here on Earth, it would not be very long before we had people on Mars bringing back whatever it was because we love treasure and rightly so God has made the universe just teeming with with wealth and treasure for for our comfort for our good and the Bible does say that God made all things for our enjoyment provided we receive it with thanksgiving Nevertheless, I can't help but think of this great disconnect between what we as a, a race of creatures will do to get the treasure out of our natural world, whether it's easy or not easy at all, in order to, to become more wealthy, when the greatest treasures in the universe are between the covers of this book. Do you really believe that? I don't know that we do. Otherwise, we'd read it a lot more, wouldn't we? The whole race of, of humanity would read this book and treasure it and, and mine it like as for gold, looking for what it is that is uh, promised to us in this book. Well, I have the great joy today of talking about four such treasures that are ours because of Christ Jesus that are written in today's preaching text. And I just have to acknowledge at the front end, and this is a confession that maybe you'll join me in, I can say that this is more valuable than oil. I can tell you that it's more valuable than gold, but I don't know if I really believe it. I want to believe it. Intellectually, I believe it. But is it more valuable to me than anything else? in the universe? I don't know. Is it more valuable, after I tell you about it, will it be more valuable to you than anything in the universe? Would you, would you give up everything else to have the four things that we're going to talk about today? Or would you do what so many people do, trade away the eternal inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus for some oil? for some gold, for a bigger house? What is it that you're pursuing in the material world? 
Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Uh, as you find your spot, please stand. We're going to read about four of the greatest treasures in all of reality. We should trade away our, our very lives for these things. And if you can be honest with me, perhaps we could pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to value this treasure just a little bit more. Romans chapter 5 Verses 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice even in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the Word of God. Great treasures to be mined this morning in this text. Let's pray that God would help us. Heavenly Father, we start by confessing to you together that we do not value the treasure of the Gospel nearly as much as we ought. And we want your help in this. As we gaze upon Jesus, would that the world would grow strangely dim. Would that we hate even our own life by comparison of the riches stored up for us in heaven. Would that we could say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Would that we would heed the words of Christ that where our treasure is, there our hearts are also. God, we cannot serve both you and money. And by money, the, by extension, all of the things that we pursue in this life. Forgive us how easily we are satisfied with material riches, comfort, Forgive us that we do not care enough about your kingdom and making sure that more people know about it, valuing it ourselves. Forgive us when we're not willing to trade all that we have to buy the field with the pearl of greatest price. Help us. I, I pray for a miracle this morning in the broadest sense of the word that your Holy Spirit would use the preaching of your word, the scriptures themselves, to give us uh, an unquenchable desire for the treasures of the gospel, the treasures that are ours because of justification. Oh God, help us change our appetites, change the orientation of our hearts because we are too weak to do this. 
just radically up, upend our lives so that we find ourselves making decisions that we never thought we would make for the sake of Christ. Not out of guilt or some desire to be more righteous, but because we value what is freely ours. Oh God, help us and help me. Help me to preach and change me as I sit myself under the preaching of the Word this morning. Change me. Give me a deeper hunger and thirst for your kingdom and the things of Christ. And likewise, this church. Make us salty. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. So we open with a challenge, but I, I hope we can transition now to just, just revel in these things that God wants to give us and has given us if we're already in Christ. And, and, and please be praying throughout the, the, this whole sermon. Pray for me, pray for yourself, pray for this church, pray for, for your children and your grandchildren, pray for the people who, who claim to know Christ and love Him, pray that we in this room would, would leave here radically different because we see with new eyes and greater clarity, this is what I want. This is what I want. And we have it. It's ours. If we're in Christ. So in today's text, we're in that justification part of the book. And in today's text, we're going to look at four treasures that are ours by justification. That is, when we believe the promises of God. And chapter 4 ends off with the climactic promise of God. Which is, well, let's take a look at it. Verses 23 and 24. Chapter 4, 23 to 24. But the words, it was counted to him, that is, to Abraham. Abraham, justification, righteousness was counted to Abraham because of his faith in the promises of God. So the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but ours also. In other words, what Paul is saying there is God's means of salvation, his means of making us righteous hasn't changed since Abraham and before Abraham. That is, the way in which Abraham was counted righteous is the same way that we are counted righteous. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he died in your place, the punishment you deserve fell on him instead of you. If you believe that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, that his body didn't stay in the grave, but, but that God who created the universe is powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, then it will be counted to you that you are righteous. What does righteous mean? Pretty good person? More good than bad? No. 
perfect righteousness. No sin. Perfect life. No blemish. No mistakes. Nothing to be punished. Just want that to sink in. Because we continue to beat ourselves up with shame and guilt. Justified if you believe the promises of God. Nothing left for God to punish. So in today's text then, Paul is going to take this, this great idea that we can be made righteous, declared to be righteous, if we just believe the promises of God. And when we believe the promises of God, I want to tell you now about four treasures that are yours in justification. Number one, you have peace with God. Number two, you have access into grace. Number three, you have hope in the glory of God. And number four, you have the ability to rejoice in your suffering. This is more valuable than any deposit of oil or any heap of gold or any size house or any annual income or any fast truck or car, or vacation house. It, it makes the things of this world seem like sandcastles. That you might as well just be that two-year-old that kicks them over and get on with what really matters. Let's take a look at these. This is, this is the rest of our time together. I'm just going to explain what are these four things? What, what are these treasures? And, and I'm so aware of how limited I am. I, I am so aware of my inability to actually communicate to us the depth of the treasure of these things. The, the, these are the most glorious things that we could ever hope for, and I'm just going to absolutely fail in, in inspiring you about this. So we better pray. Uh, we better pray again. God, help, help us. Like, don't let the preacher get in the way of, of you just tasting the glory of God in his promised treasure through justification. Let's pray. Oh God, I, I just feel so inadequate. Peace with God access into grace, hope in the glory of God, ability to rejoice in suffering. I don't know how to explain this in a way that will blow our minds, change our lives. Completely helpless, but you're not. I pray, Holy Spirit, take your word and, and my words, which are so, so inadequate, and Deliver this to our hearts. Uh, we need some supernatural preaching. And I pray that we would all just go home and, and truly be disgusted 
by the way we're living our lives, but to be overflowing with joy in what we have in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Number one, peace with God. Take a look, it's verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first three of the treasures are are rooted in that statement, therefore, since we've been justified by faith. Huge assumption is that you've been justified by faith, that you actually believe the promises of God. So if you're sitting here and you don't know if you actually believe if Jesus died for you, you don't know if, if, if he was raised from the dead, you don't know if he carried your sin in his body, you gotta start there. Be justified. Take the gift. And I know it's impossible for you. We will not take that amazing gift unless the Holy Spirit uh, enables us to and gives us the faith. So pray even now if you don't, if you, it's a kind of, how can you pray for this if you don't have it? Uh, we'll pray for you right now, all of us in, your, in our spirits, that if there's anyone in that position, that, that you'll just say, I, I, I'm justified. I want to be justified and I believe it. So for the rest of us, if you are justified, you believe deep down in, in the promises of God uh, therefore, then this is yours. All of Romans 4 is true, and you have peace with God. Now, before we talk about what is the peace of, with God all about, there's a presupposition here which is crucial. It presupposes that we were at war with God. This is what the world doesn't realize. This is what unsaved people don't know. They don't know that they're at war with God. They know they hate Him if He exists. And it, it, I mean, I'm not doubting it, but they're doubting it. I hate God. I don't believe in God, but if there is a God, I hate Him. Like, that's just hardwired into, into people who aren't justified. And they may not say it exactly like that, but if you peel uh, down to the core of it, that's what they're saying. They're at war with God. How ridiculous is it to pick a fight with God? To be at war with God. He, he said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let there be life, and there was life. He spoke this whole universe into existence, and he can unspeak it, or he can speak it out of existence. It's a better way to say it. Who wants to be at war with that kind of a being? He's always been. He's not even a creature. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. You can't even run away from him. Like, if you're at war with someone, you want to at least be able to keep your distance until you're ready to engage. You can't get away from him. And yet, the world is at war with God. And the proof of that is Romans 1.18 to 3.20. And what is the end of that war? Wrath. Condemnation hell. God wins. God will win. And anyone who's at war against God will lose. Then it's really good news that we're at peace with him.
What is peace with God? Well, it's no wrath. Let's just start there. There's no wrath. If you are at peace with God, God does not pour out His wrath against people with whom He is at peace with. That's an awful kind of peace. So you know all that preaching that we did about wrath, or you think about the the horrors of of the wrath of God and, and, and the coming hell and judgment for everyone. There is no wrath. In Romans 8.1, it says, There is now therefore no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's great news. What have you done? What have you said? What have you felt? What have you thought? There's no condemnation for it. You're at peace with God. He will never look at you and say, I am angry and I'm going to punish you. God will never, ever punish those with whom He is at peace with. He will never withdraw from us. God will never say, I'm tired of your antics. I'm tired of your continuing falling into the same sin. I'm tired of your unlikability. He'll never, ever, ever withdraw from you. Even when you run as fast as you can away from Him, He'll just chase you and He'll be with you all the time. You can't outrun Him. You can't get away from Him. He says, I'm going to love you no matter what. That's true for this life, and it's true for the life to come. So when you're on your deathbed, if you are given that opportunity to to know that the end is near, there's no fear. Because when your body stops working, you don't die. Because God is life with a capital L, and He'll never withdraw from you. If, he, if life will never withdraw from you, you can't die. All you can do is to transition from one way of living to a greater way of living. You, you throw off your body for a time, and you're now in the presence of the Almighty God. You haven't died. So the people gather at your funeral and they're grieving for you because from an earthly perspective, this person has died. But from your perspective, you are more alive than you've ever been before because you're at peace with God and He will never withdraw from you. You're already, we are already on the other side of death. Well, when did we die? 2,000 years ago on the cross. We are on the other side of death. You're already in eternal life. There's a, there's a bumpy transition in the road ahead when you throw off this body, but you will not die. Huh. God's the God of the living and not of the dead. Which means there's no hell for you. Never ever spend another ounce of anxiety or worry or fear about hell. You're at peace with God. There's no hell for you. How do we get this peace with God? Well, it says justification by faith. Faith in what? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Do you see it there? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is all by faith. What does it mean to have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ? Exactly what we've been talking about. Substitutionary atonement, propitiation. You are united with Christ. You join Him on the cross. You join Him in His resurrection from the dead. His righteousness is your righteousness. 
and nothing can split you apart from Him. You are united with Him always and forever. There's no ripping that apart, which is why God hates divorce. Because the marriage is the picture of our union with Christ. And God says, okay, there's grace for divorce, but it distorts the picture. We're united with Christ. His reality has become our reality. That's what it means through our Lord Jesus Christ. What are some implications then of having peace with God? I think I've talked about a lot of them already. Here's a few more. Again, I can't actually communicate this glory to you. But here, here's my best effort. We have no guilt or shame over past or future sin. How many of you are wrestling with shame over sin that you committed decades ago? Let it go. You have peace with God. That's, that's a lie from the pits of hell, from the prince of the power of the air to cause you to walk in life with a limp that you don't need to have. There's no guilt, there's no shame for those who have been justified. How can I say that? Well, your sin has been removed and put in Jesus on the cross. God's already punished that sin. It's dealt with when Jesus says it is finished. That's what he means. It is finished. Stop wallowing in the shame and guilt of sin. Now, when we get to Romans 6, I'm going to add to this, should we then go out sinning and give ourselves license to sin? No, by no means. People who are justified don't want to sin, even though we, we do desire it from time to time. Deeply, we don't. But I can't preach that sermon today. Today, just let go of your shame, let go of your guilt. The sin debt has been paid in full. There's no fear of punishment now or ever. So if you get sick and you ask the question, is God punishing me? The answer is no. If you are struggling financially and you ask the question, is God punishing me? The answer is no. If you have strained relationships in your family or at work or at school, or with neighbors, and you say, maybe God is punishing me. No. God doesn't punish people he's at peace with. There's no punishment. This is a really important theology to, to, to embrace. God does discipline those whom he loves. It's different. He will bring trials into your life. Why? because he's going to use those trials to mature you in Christ so that you can enjoy more of his glory. It's different. But he's not angry with you. He's not punishing you. He is loving you and giving you an opportunity to grow up in Christ. It's different. That's sanctification, Romans 6 and 7. So I can't preach that today. It's coming. Uh, and I've already said this, but let me just say it again. What are some of the implications of having peace with God? Complete amnesty from the wrath of God. You can have all your oil and gold 
and material wealth. I want amnesty from the wrath of God. Access into grace. So the first, sorry, I skipped a whole paragraph here. The first treasure of justification is peace with God. Second treasure is justific- of justification is access into grace. Take a look at the first part of verse 2. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And again, this is rooted on the justification of, of faith, believing in the promises of God, which we've gone over. So, so what is this access into grace? When, uh, in order to understand this, access into grace really goes along with peace with God. They're two parts of the same thing. So, so there's a negative side to justification and a positive side. That is, God, God makes up for all of the negative and then he adds a superabundance of positive. So justification has two parts, the removal of the negative and the addition of the positive. If peace with God is the removal of the negative, just to remind ourselves that's the end to war with God, the end to condemnation by God, an end to the wrath of God. So that's the removal, the, the, the removal of our sin debt. So that brings us up to sort of neutral. Access into grace then tops us up with all the riches that belong to Christ. Just get your heads around that for a minute. And this is really clear in Ephesians 1. God says, with justification comes an inheritance. So if you have like a rich uncle or aunt and, and uh, you're the next of kin and you're going to get $7 million, that's what we're talking about, that kind of an inheritance. So access into grace is the, this idea of inheritance, what we get. Now I just want to try and put into words what we get. In Ephesians 1, this is really clear. We get everything that God the Father has eternally given to God the Son. (laughs) What? Say that again. How many zeros comes after that? One. Everything that God the Father has given to God the Son, we have. That's our inheritance. That's what we have access to. Well, how much does God have to give? Well, let's just start with the whole universe and move on from there. I I don't even know. It's like a bottomless pit. He's an infinite God. And this is what we get through justification precisely. It's staggering. Access into grace is the addition of all this positive, and it starts with a completely righteous status before God. And then it follows through as we're receiving this inheritance, an invitation to stand before the throne of God's judgment, which has now become the throne of God's grace. And how does this tie into the inheritance? Because the Bible is so clear all over the place. We stand there not as convicted sinners anymore, but as adopted sons and daughters. That's, we get the access of a son or a daughter to the throne of God. And the throne of God is the most 
precious reality in reality. So it just flows from there that if we have access to the throne of God, and there's other scriptures that say that we will reign with Christ, if we have access, if, if God says, come on up here and sit up here with me, sit on my lap, not in a awful sort of creepy Santa Claus kind of way, but as a, a God and Father of the universe kind of way, get up here, sit on this throne, it flows from there that he gives us everything else because that's the hardest thing to get. Now, I want to put this in perspective for us. This is the picture. Adam and Eve had a form of this. I, I don't know, there's debate whether or not they had all of this or we have something more than they had. I, I think we have more than they had. They were in a, 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 st a stage of probation. But now we, we have what might have been promised to them, but we have it. But they sinned, right? So, so they're booted out to the east of Eden. And what does it say in Genesis 3? God guarded the tree of life in the garden of Eden with a cherub and a flaming sword. It's an angel. It's like, it's, a, it's God's protection force. It's not that he needs it, but he, he puts these cherubim out there and they're lethal angels. That their, their whole job description is to kill on sight. That's what a cherub is. And he puts this lethal angel and says, with a flaming sword, as if like the rest of what I said isn't enough to scare us away, but we can have access to what we had. You know, notice the word access. So then the, Moses comes along and God says, I want you to build a tabernacle. And what this tabernacle is, which becomes a temple, that's going to be a portal back to access, full access with God, Eden and beyond. And so it's going from east to west. So if you're to enter the tabernacle or the temple, you're walking from the east, the place of exile, to the west, back to what we lost. And what does God do? He says, well, there's going to be an outer court, and you have to be clean to get inside. And he tells you all the ways that you can be unclean. That restricts access. Okay, so let's say I'm clean. I get in. I'm in. I bring my sheep, and it's offered that's as far as I get. That's the end of my access as a, a regular Jew. But there's priests who offer the sacrifice, and there's priests that have a little more access. They can get inside the tent of the tabernacle, or once it's a temple, into the, the building of the, of the temple. And this is called the holy place. And priests would go in there if they're from the right place, and they're purified, and they're clean, and they've done all the things that they need to do every day to trim the lights and put the showbread up and light the incense. But there's a curtain on the far end of this room, and guess what's embroidered in this curtain? Cherubim. Ah, reminder, lethal angels, don't go past here. It's just like a no trespassing sign. Don't go past here. There's lethal angels on the other side. Once a year, the high priest, after purifying himself, he, uh, he would then be able to go past this curtain which warns him that there's a lethal angel on the other side. He gets very carefully after filling it with smoke so he doesn't do something or look on something the wrong way. He gets in there and he finds that there's a box and over top of the box, what are there? Two cherubim. Oh no, I'm getting closer to the, to the lethal angels. Let's get the blood on and get out of there and they tie a rope around his leg in, in case those lethal angels struck him dead and they have to drag him out into the unclean place outside of the courtyard. It's a long rope. So the, the room that the priests go in is holy. The, the, the place where beyond the veil, where there's a cherub and where this box is with two lethal angels on top of it, just a, just a carving to remind us, 
That's the holy, holy place. Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets caught up into holy, 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 and what does he see? Four cherubim. He calls them seraphim. It just means, I see burning ones. They're, they're the same angel, lethal angels. And he falls down and he says, I'm a dead man. This is the prophet Isaiah. What's the, what, why do I tell you all this? We have lost all concept of access and how restricted God's throne room is. You can't just dance into God's throne room. God consumed uh, two men who were too casual outside the tent of meeting. They weren't even in the holy place because of strange fire. Access to God is not possible unless you are justified. It, it is the most deadly dangerous thing to try and get close to God. And now, God says, you have access into grace. That is, the grace that is yours by justification clothes you in perfect righteousness so that you go from exile to the east of Eden and you just walk straight through, not just into the courtyard, not just into the holy place, not just into holy holies, but beam me up into holy, holy, holy. You see the throne, you say, excuse me, seraphim. You get to the throne and you say, dad. And he says, come on up. Sit on my throne. And when you're sitting there, reigning with Christ, judging angels, he says, it's all yours. <laughs> it's amazing. What are some implications of having access into grace? I mean, I've hopefully shared some of them, but assurance that your prayers are always received and heard by God. Unsaved, unjustified, unsaved people, God is aware of their prayers, but he doesn't hear them in the sense that he doesn't receive them. Every time a justified person utters a prayer to God, God hears it, receives it, and treasures it. So why don't we pray? Knowledge that God is always for us. We're judging cherubim now. Ultimately, access to the tree of life. Perfect righteousness. We have just become the greatest creatures in the universe. So if you're struggling day to day, just try to have some perspective. 1st treasure of justification is peace with God. 2nd treasure of justification is access into grace. 3rd treasure is of justification is hope in the glory of God. What is the hope of the glory of God? On the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's how the Bible describes it. The great and terrible day of the Lord. What is the great and terrible day of the Lord? It's the day when God reveals himself fully at the return of Christ and judges the nations. On the great and terrible day of the Lord, God will manifest the fullness of his glory. 
Now this is good news for those who are justified, but it's really bad news for the unjustified because of what I just shared with you. When God manifests his, the fullness of his glory, we die. But now we have hope in the glory of God. That is, we can actually look forward to it. We can actually long for it. God, I just wish you would manifest the fullness of your glory because I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's like the best possible flame-retardant suit that you could ever find. There's nothing that can hurt you. The full glory and goodness and righteousness of God will be like the, 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 the beauty and the basking of the sun because you've been made fit for it through justification. We no longer need to dread the day of the Lord. We can hope for it. We can long for it to come. And, and let's, let me just add to this, which I've kind of alluded to. We can long for it because on the day that God manifests his glory, we are raised from the dead in glory. It's like, uh, this is a terrible analogy, but maybe it'll help somebody. If you throw me into the ocean, I'll drown but if you give me gills, I can live. Like if I could breathe underwater. You have to make me fit for my environment. There's a really bad movie by Kevin Costner called Waterworld where he, he could do that. But this is different. God doesn't make us fit to swim the oceans. He makes us fit to walk into his unapproachable light. He gives you a body and a spirit that is fit. That what I mean by that is, is capable. You have the capacity in your glorified, resurrected self, which is a super physical body that has continuity with this one. 1 Corinthians 15, can't preach that today. But you have a, a raised up body that's glorified, and in that body... This is what it means to be a spiritual body. It's, it's, it's super physical, but it's a spiritual body in this sense. I'm walking into the unapproachable light of God in that body. It's yours, the hope of the glory of God. So, if I die and you bury me, you've buried something that's perishable, but hope in the glory of God, I, I will be and you shall because that perishable body will be raised up, imperishable, immortal, fit for glory. And that's, that's the hope of justified people. What are the, some implications of having hope in the glory of God? Well, we no longer need to fear death or judgment. Death is just a bump in the road. We can look past immediate pleasures <laughs> Give me the, the most luxurious item on the earth today and that it looks small compared to what I'm trying to describe to you. So let's reorient our perspective. Let's cling to what we have in Christ by justification and just let this world go. I was amazed in one of my previous church, man left the church, and one of the reasons why was so that he could buy this house in an overpopulated part of the city. And I said, that, that is just an awful trade. An awful trade that his value was not in justification and eternal glory, but in a nice house, but 
Not really. So where, where are you trading in for eternal glory? Uh, a total reorientation of our lives toward the eschatological horizon. That's what I mean. Is that Rethink your life based on what you've learned this morning. Uh, I've said it before, but discipleship can only go so far in our culture. We, there's a ceiling that we hit. And the only way to punch through that ceiling is if we stop loving the world so much. If we say, oh, there's a great kingdom out there that I'm already a citizen of and that's where I want to invest myself. But I, I promise you, so long as you care more about your stuff in this world, your jobs in this world, your health in this world, there's a ceiling that I will never be able to take you past and I can, you can be like a, a, a balloon filled with helium on a string bouncing on the ceiling, but you'll never punch through until you love your justification. I don't really have time for this last one, which is huge. The ability to rejoice in our suffering I mean, probably what I've described to you is enough, right? That, that's sufficient, even though it's inadequate the way I described it. That's, that's, a, that's a lot. But then God says through Paul, not only that, I've got a bonus prize for you. You're going to be able to rejoice in your suffering. That's just thrown in as a gift, a bonus on top of everything else. And, and what's so good about this? Well, uh, unjustified people, there's no reason to rejoice in suffering. There's a lot of nice cards that say about, you know, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Baloney. This is not true. Suffering has no, uh, no meaning apart from justification. Because... You know, even if you, you, you try to use that suffering for some kind of earthly good, eventually you'll die, and it was all for nothing anyway. But if you're justified, then every drop of suffering, insignificant drops and in, in great suffering altogether, God uses it to produce praise in us. How? Well, God uses our suffering to reorient our lives. To change the very thing that I'm trying to push us toward. To break open the ceiling. It's through suffering that that ceiling will crumble and you'll find there's so much more in life and reality. How does this work? Suffering produces endurance. If God gives you suffering, well, you have to endure with the suffering. So that alone is good. But you could say that about unsaved people too. But let me just ask this question. Maybe we shouldn't be so quick to pray for the removal of suffering then if suffering is meant to produce endurance. Why is it that in our prayers, God, take away this suffering? Why aren't we saying, God, give me endurance? Or God, give Aunt Wilma endurance? Or God, you know, whatever. Help us to endure this suffering because we know that all things work together for good for those who love you, and this is a gift that you're giving to me. It doesn't feel like a gift, but it is. So maybe we should be praying for the strength to endure. Well, what's so good about enduring in suffering? Well, endurance produces character. And this can only, so if unsaved, unjustified people can endure suffering, 
but this next part is only possible for justified people. What is the character that Paul is talking about? He's talking about the fact that justified people will contextualize their suffering against the treasures and the truth of justification. They'll start saying, well, yes, this, this is suffering, but in light of all of that, yes, this hurts, but in light of all of that, that's the character I'm enduring in this, but look at what I have over there. I, I have this temporary affliction, but look what I have for eternity. You see, that's the kind of character that, that Paul is talking about. That enduring and suffering for justified people, we have to then, because we're enduring, have to make sense of it. We make sense of it by contextualizing it against the treasures of justification. So let me just give you some examples. I may be in conflict with my family because of the gospel, so my family may hate me because I love Jesus, but I have peace with God. I don't have peace with my family, but I have peace with God. Now, these are hypothetical, okay? I'm not saying this is true of me. But do you see how that suffering, when you endure it and contextualize it, produces a character? A second example, I may be suffering financial loss and material poverty, but I have access to God's grace, and I stand before the very throne of God Almighty, and He has given me everything that He has given Christ. So I'll be poor for a, a few more years. And then I will be richer than I could ever imagine. That's the kind of character that comes through suffering. I may be dying of cancer. Here's another one. I may be dying of cancer, or fill in the blank. I may be dying. We're all dying. I may be dying, and I know I'm dying, and it hurts, it's uncomfortable and it's painful, but I have the hope of the glory of God. Cancer doesn't win. This pain is temporary. I'll be raised in glory and I will see God's face. Only justified people can make those statements. And this character, when you start thinking about your life that way, it produces hope. When justified people contextualize their suffering against the truth of justification, an irrepressible hope holds them fast. And hope is not, I hope it's true. Hope is an absolute certainty in the promises of God. And this hope will not disappoint us. We know this because we have God's love in our hearts. We're already in communion with God by the Holy Spirit who has been poured out in us. Therefore, justification totally transforms our suffering. Don't waste your suffering. Use it to, and the endurance that is required to produce justified character that is the character that comes to only to justified people. And once you have that character, you'll find that all of a sudden there's a hope that erupts inside of you that is better than any painkiller. Today's text, we discover four treasures, treasures of justification, peace with God, access into grace, hope in the glory of God, and the ability to rejoice in our suffering. I have failed to explain the depths of the glory of these treasures. But I hope I've done enough to make this world grow dim 
in your heart. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for justifying us.